This morning, I, uh, I'm excited to, to share what I, I believe God is, has laid on my heart. I hope you have your Bibles with you. If you do, go ahead and turn to um, 2 Kings chapter 4. And yes, I do say 2 Kings. That is actually grammatically correct. Believe it or not. Unless you say the second book of Kings, in which case that's fine, but no one cares. If you say two kings or second kings, trust me, no one cares. This is a hill I have tried to die on for a long time, but no one wants to fight about it because it literally doesn't matter. Um, but uh, you might be familiar with this, this chapter in, uh, in second kings because of the very first story it tells. It's a very popular story, story of, of God multiplying the widow's pot of oil until she has enough oil to pay off all of her debts and then enough oil uh, to sell and for her and her kids to live on. It's a story of God's faithfulness. It's a a story of God's uh, desire to supply and take care of his children. That a reminder we rely, like I said a few moments ago, on God. He sustains us and, and he sustains the widow all that to say, that's not what I'm going to talk about this morning. Instead, I want to, I want to, I want to posit a question. Uh, and then I'm going to tell you a bit of a story about myself before we talk, uh, before we talk about a story in this passage. And I, I want to talk to you about dreams. Because we all have them, right? How many of you have ever had a dream? How many of you have ever had ambition or, or goals? Or, uh, does anyone here want to like ever accomplish anything <laughs> at all? That's like everybody, right? And in America, we especially love talking about people's dreams. I mean, we've got like the penultimate dream, right? That's, that's the American dream, you know, to have a, a spouse and 2.5 children. Don't ask me how that works out. Uh, a white picket fence. Probably, what, five bed, three bath, I don't know, somewhere in there. Dreams matter a, a lot. And, and the university that I went to, actually, it's kind of funny. Uh, they, they have a saying at Oral Roberts University, make no little plans here. And that was kind of the mantra, the heartbeat of the university that, that was uh, repeated to me day after day for four years. <clears throat> and it sounds good, right? Make no little plans here. Another way to put it that might sound a little bit more scriptural is uh, to dream a dream so big that only God could make it work, because then you're not relying on yourself, and that's, that's a, a great thing that also sounds uh, super scriptural. Um, I hope that uh, maybe the, the tone with which I said that didn't give away my whole sermon. Um, we, we care a lot about dreams, don't we? We talk about them all the time. And if, and if you don't think that we do, I mean, literally every ad... <laughs> for any bank ever, is like, what is it you want to accomplish? What do you want to do with your life? What is it that you want to build? Because we'll give you a loan to pay for it. And then insurance companies are like, what is it you want to do? What do you want to accomplish? What do you want to build? Because if you give us a bunch of money, we'll protect it. And so uh, a lot of uh, the financial industry is built around uh, building, sustaining, protecting, insuring people's dreams. A lot of people have a lot of dreams. I want to talk to you 
this morning about uh, my dream that I had for uh, a long time. I grew up in a very military family. Um, and by that, I mean my parents were both in the Navy. They met in Okinawa uh, in Japan during Vietnam. Uh, the brother that I was closest with growing up, Josh, he's only a couple years older than me, uh, he went straight into the Army after high school, and he uh, served for a while in Iraq and Afghanistan during the War on Freedom, or War on Terror, for freedom. <laughs> Sorry. Let me drink some more coffee real quick. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Glory to God. So, uh, so Josh was, uh, he was in Iraq and in Afghanistan for a while while I was in high school. And uh, we've had people in our family, direct people that I am descendant from, in every U.S. conflict all the way back to the Revolutionary War. And so when I say we come from a military family, I'm like a very military family. <laughs> like like it's, it's, it's sort of our heartbeat. And for a long time, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to either go into the Navy or the Air Force. Uh, the Air Force because I thought they were really cool, and the Navy because that's what my parents did, and, and I figured they would, they would like that. My, my brother went into the Army because my parents were in the Navy, and if you don't know, there's a little bit of a rivalry there. Um, and so he was, it was kind of his way of rebelling, uh, and, and, well, the, the Army actually made him a, a better person, so uh, <laughs> we're, we're grateful for that. But uh, we were a very military family. And I wanted to go into the Navy or the Air Force. I wanted to be a pilot, specifically a fighter pilot, because I had seen Top Gun. And even though I wasn't in peak physical condition, I just thought, man, I could also woo people while playing sand volleyball with my shirt off um, <laughs> and be able to tell them, hey, I'm also a fighter pilot, just so you know. Uh, but when I went to college, uh, when I went to high school, sorry, uh, I had a bit of a growth spurt. See, the, the point in time when I wanted to be a fighter pilot, I was like barely five feet tall. Uh, now I'm 6'5". And if you didn't know, you can't really be a fighter pilot if you're that tall. If you've seen Top Gun, uh, you know that there is a, a character who passes away when he attempts to eject out of his plane. Uh, the plane was in a flat spin. He hits his head on the uh, top of the cockpit that doesn't fully clear the aircraft. Um, if you're really tall, that's a lot more likely to happen. And so once you hit a certain height, you're just not allowed to be a fighter pilot. And so uh, I was talking to a recruiter, and they were like, yeah, you can't do that, but, I mean, you could fly like a really big plane, you know? And I was like, oh, yeah, I could transport cargo for years. That sounds like fun. Um, but it didn't. And so I kind of had to give up on that dream, and I had to think about other dreams and what did I want to do. And uh, you'll notice a pattern in this story. At no point did I ask God what my dream should be. Um, and so I was like, well, I don't really like people, shocker. And so... Uh, <laughs> Hey, God, how about, uh, you know, I'm really good at telling stories. I'm, I'm good at, at sharing uh, information. And uh, I learned when I was a, a kid that I could make people laugh. And I loved making people laugh. So I know what I'll do. I will be a writer. And I'll buy a cabin in the woods in Montana. And then I'll never have to talk to people. I didn't know that, like, DoorDash and Uber Eats were going to be a thing because that's even better. I, like, I don't even have to go to the grocery store. I can just live in seclusion and isolation in the wonderful state of Montana where it's just trees and snow. Um, my two favorite things. And here I am in Florida. Uh, <laughs> as you can see, things are going well. All right. Uh, so this is what I wanted to do, and I was so excited to do it. And then... Um, High school happens, and I meet a girl. 
a girl that I think is very cute. Spoiler alert, not my wife. Um, <laughs> so you can see how things are going for me um, very well. And so I met this girl, and she was really cute, and I wanted to, to get to know her, and I was in creative writing my freshman year of high school because that's what I wanted to do with my life. But then I met this cute girl, and she was in drama. And uh, I was not an actor because I grew up with a lisp and a stutter, and I was really um, self-conscious about the way that I talked. If you've ever heard the, uh, the tongue twister, Sally sells seashells by the seashore, my dad would make me say that time and time and time again. I've got like mild PTSD from repeating it for 45 minutes as a child because when I would say it, it would be Thali Thel Thethelf by the Thethor. And it was just so bad and it hurt. And so I didn't, I didn't ever imagine I would be on a stage. As you can see, things are going well for me. <laughs> and so I... I I was like, okay, well, this girl's kind of cute, and I kind of want to go to drama and get to know her. Um, nothing ever came from that. We never even went on a date. I never even told her that. I thought she was cute. Um, but God works in mysterious ways. And, and in drama that year, I ended up writing the class play. Super random. It was actually going to be a good friend of mine, and he uh, got really mad at the class, and a week before he had to turn in the script, he uh, washed his hands of the project and walked away. And everyone was like, well, you're his friend. You can write, yeah? And I was like, yes. I wanted to be a writer. Crazy. God knew what he was doing. So, so in a week, I write a script. It was supposed to be a horror play. Um, it, uh, uh, it was, it was <laughs> premiered to a packed house, believe it or not, and everyone was laughing the entire time. And I'm thinking, this was supposed to be scary. <laughs> Why is it funny? And so then the school newspaper wanted to interview me afterwards because um, I was the one who wrote the play, and they were like, so how did you decide to write a satire on the horror genre? And I was like, that's a great question. Um, you know, I just, I feel like horror is just overdone, you know? <laughs> if any of my classmates are watching, this might be the first time they hear that it wasn't supposed to be a comedy. <laughs> but it wasn't. And so I was like, okay. As you can see at this point, my, it's going really well for me. And so uh, I finish out uh, the rest of my high school year, all four years I spend in drama. And my junior year, there is a youth ministry night in my youth group. It's in October of my junior year in high school. And my youth pastor comes to me and he says, hey, John, every Wednesday this month, I want a different youth to give the sermon. Not, not a five-minute testimony, but the actual sermon. I want you to take 20 minutes and get up there and, and share God's word. And because we were all teenagers still and in high school, and uh, most of us were either sophomores, juniors, or seniors, uh, that he asked, he, he said, I've got a theme for the month of October. It's not super original. You know, October ends with Halloween, so our theme is fear. And we want you to just take a Wednesday and talk about fear and I'll walk you through it. I'll, I'll help you with prepping your sermon, your points, and all this stuff. And I was like, okay, sure. I, uh, at this point, had become a little more comfortable being on stage after doing drama for several years. And I had no inkling in my mind that at this point, I was ever going to do this. 
things are going well for me. Uh, so he, uh, uh, he asked me, and I say, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll do that. I end up doing my sermon. Uh, everyone else is talking about fear, fear of uh, commitment, fear of relationship. Phobias is what one person talked about one week. And I decided that I want to talk about fear of intimacy, but specifically fear of intimacy with God. A fear of getting too close to God, you know, that, that idea that uh, what if he realizes my breath stinks if I get too close to God? And it, it went over pretty well, and uh, a couple months later, they had all of us that had been uh, preaching that October, we all got together on a Sunday morning, and we gave abbreviated versions of our sermon. So I gave like a little five-minute snippet on what I talked about, and the other uh, youth uh, did the same. And so we kind of all tag-teamed that Sunday morning. Um, it sounds really cool, right? It was, it was really, really fun. It was, it was a really cool way to engage the, the younger folk. And that Sunday morning that we all kind of did our little spiel, afterwards there was an altar call. And as God is my witness, darn near every single person in that church came up to the stage because they felt so moved by everything that had been shared that morning. And not just me, there were five other people that were talking. And so we, we ended up going like an hour and a half over as the, the spirit was there and we were anointing people with oil and we were praying for them. And then at the end of it all, it was like, brace yourself, it was almost like 1.30 in the afternoon. <laughs> Everyone was way late for lunch, but no one cared. And there was, there was about 300 people or so that, that Sunday morning. And so afterwards, I was, uh, I was sitting outside because this is the middle of winter in Ohio, so it was a little chilly uh, in like January. Um, but I'm sitting outside because if you've ever been in that environment, it, it kind of feels like, like when the Holy Spirit shows up in that way that he runs over to the thermostat and dials it up to 97 degrees. Um, and so I was, I was sitting outside, I had uh, unbuttoned my shirt and I was sitting on the curb talking with uh, my mom and with a couple of my friends thinking about everything that had just happened for the last near three hours. And I, and I asked myself, how could anyone not want to do this with the rest of their life? I'm going to let you know real quick what had been planted in me, the dream that I had chased in that moment was not the right dream. It sounds great so far, but just wait. At that point, God had uh, made it clear to me that, that ministry is what I was supposed to do, specifically ministry in a church, um, preaching and sharing God's word, and uh, as we highbrow theologians occasionally say, rightly dividing the word of truth. My dream that, that I had been filled with in that moment was a dream of impact, wanted to change the lives of people. That sounds great. It sounds scriptural, right? I wanted to go out there and I wanted to win the lost for Jesus. I wanted to, I wanted to talk to everybody I could. I wanted to impact the world for the church. And that sounds great. But sometimes that doesn't look like we think it will. Jesus impacted the world more so than anyone else. And you know what he did? He died. And he came back. But that act on the cross was how he impacted us for eternity. He didn't have a million people show up to his gospel crusade. 
So in my head, I wasn't thinking about the cross. I was thinking about the million people. I was thinking about the gospel crusade. I was thinking like, okay, if I'm going to do something for, for, for Christ, it's going to be big and it's going to be extravagant. Because I had grown up in a very military family, which means you had a plan. You had a one-year plan, a two-year plan, a three-year, a five-year, a 10-year. You probably had a 20-year idea of where you want to be. And you're probably planning to retire at like 50 and then start a new career. I don't know. And so I had all of these goals, all of these dreams, things that I wanted to uh, accomplish, but they all came down to me wanting to be a source of impact. And there's two phrases that I heard growing up, and they might sound really familiar uh, to some of you. The first one that I heard all the time was, God can't steer a parked car. God can't steer a parked car. The other one that I heard all the time, um, I, I, I wrote it down. It's, it's weird. It rhymes, and I'm not good at that. Uh, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. I heard that all the time. And so I was like, okay, well, if only what's done for Christ is what's really going to last, and if God can't steer a parked car, and I've decided that my dream is impact, then I need to get busy. I need to get, like, really busy. I need to start doing everything I can possibly do. And things kind of seem to be going well. I think God wanted to teach me a lesson. And so he let me have what I wanted. He let me have the impact. I... Uh, <clears throat> continued serving uh, at that church where I was in the youth group, but I became a youth leader. And then um, I uh, preached several more times before I graduated high school. I went off to college. Uh, shortly after getting to college, I got plugged into some churches where I worked in, in youth groups, but also did stuff on Sunday morning, uh, kind of like what I do here. Um, and between there and here at Pine Castle, I've worked at a handful of churches as I've moved across the country and eventually settled for now in Orlando, Florida. <laughs> and I mentioned a while ago when I was doing my uh, sermon to y'all on Rahab about 2017 and how 2017 was the worst year of my life. And by comparison, 2020 was a bit of a breeze. And I, I want to uh, tell you a little bit more about 2017, and a little bit more about how that year was the worst year of my life, but it was also kind of the best. And that doesn't make any sense, but it will by the time I'm done. You see, at this point, I, uh, uh, in 2016, <clears throat> I was a youth pastor. Um, at the same time, I had a very successful uh, uh, you could say career. I didn't go to school for it, but um, I had uh, kind of learned on the job working in human resources for uh, a massive nonprofit. Things were going really well. Um, I had actually uh, uh, been promoted out of HR for a time to work with the president on his team, um, and things were, were really taking off, and, and everyone was, was kind of talking about, you know, John, you're kind of a big deal, and I was like, isn't it cool? I'm kind of a big deal. And I was thinking, you know, like, the, the more of a big deal I become, the more impact I can make, and God is going to be glorified, and this is going to be awesome. Uh, but again, at this point, I still haven't asked God what my dream should be, and so my dream was impact. And in uh, May of that year, 
right after I had actually uh, felt like God told me that I needed to leave Wycliffe, I put in my notice. I need to give myself full time to this church, which at the time was not paying me. But I believe that God told me that I needed to do this. So I gave notice at Wycliffe. Not a week later, the pastor of the church pulls me into his office. And it's like, hey, John, how you doing? And we have uh, some nice pleasantries are exchanged. And then he tells me, yeah, so there's this, uh, there's this church in town. And I'm not going to mention either of these churches' names. Uh, one of them still exists and, and is in here in Orlando. And, uh, you know, they've, they've been eyeing our church for a while, and they've come to me several times over the years wanting to merge, and I've always said no. Uh, but the pastor came to me a couple months ago, and um, this time I, I feel comfortable with it, and I think that it's, it's what God wants. And so we're going to merge, and all of our leadership is stepping down. It wasn't really a merge as much as it was the other church was consuming our church, and all of the people who worked at our church were just, you can attend if you want. That's it. And uh, by the way, this is happening in a week and a half. One more thing I want to tell you about my experience at that church that I was the youth pastor. I stepped in after a long string of youth pastors had only been there for a short time. Different things had pulled them out of the church. They've had a lot of inconsistency. And when I got there, I, I struggled to build relationships with the kids because they were so used to adults coming into their life and running away. And so I'm here, I'm only at like the six month mark and I find out we're closing our doors and merging with another church and we don't need your services anymore, thank you. And that hit me like a ton of bricks. Because for the first few months, I had struggled to build relationships with these kids. And then in the last few months, I had more than doubled the size of the youth group. And I was thinking, <laughs> here we go. This is impact. We started with a handful of kids. Now we've got twice that. And we ended up getting like another 50% on top of that. The youth group, in the course of like three months, grew uh, over double that it started with. And then all of a sudden, it was being taken away from me. Of course, it wasn't being taken away from me. It was never mine to begin with, right? I recognize that now, but in the moment, that was my impact. That was the dream that God had given me. So I want to ask you a question. I'm not going to answer it for a little bit. We call that suspense. But there was a question that, that helped me about a year and a half later. What does it mean when God gives you a dream, when he shows up in that dream, and then without warning, the dream dies? Because that's what I had experienced. I felt like I had this, this amazing dream that was good, that was biblical, that was scriptural, that, that, that God had given me, and then it worked. The ministry exploded. Uh, things were happening. Like, like Kids were like giving their lives to Christ and just talking about God in a way other than, ugh, okay, yeah, sure. Like, they cared about Jesus. 
and it was working, and, and it was growing, and they were inviting their friends, and we had people coming to the youth group that had never attended the church before, and, and people that, that didn't know me, that I had not personally invited, which means the kids were actually doing that. And I thought, I didn't think kids actually did that. But they did, and everything was, was growing, and it was amazing, and then suddenly God was like, leave your job at Wycliffe, and I was like, that sounds really like a bad idea, because that's where my money is, but okay, sure, and then a week later, after I do that, <laughs> done with the church, done with the dream, <laughs> and I'm reeling, I'm, I'm just like trying to catch my breath, I'm like, What? God, you, what? You told me to leave Wycliffe so that I could devote myself to this church. And a week later, I find out that we're closing our doors. But you were there. You showed up. God, it wasn't, it wasn't me. I wasn't inviting these kids. And it, and it exploded. I mean, obviously, you were there. And he didn't answer me. And for months, I just kind of wandered through life. Just shell-shocked from what I had experienced. And not, not to <clears throat> go too deep on things that don't matter, but I had had a bit of a strained relationship with that church's leadership, and some things had been made aware to me that weren't fantastic before the news came that the, that church was, was closing. And so I was wrestling with all of this stuff. I was trying to figure out what it meant, and I just got exhausted. And over the course of several months, I, I, I let the questions consume me instead of just relying on the God that I knew loved me, and I fell into a depression, and it, it grew into this cycle that reinforced itself over and over and over again. Because I was depressed, I would do something stupid, and then I would realize that was stupid, and so I would hate myself even more, and I'd get more depressed, and it was this vicious cycle that just reinforced itself, and it lasted a really long time until someone asked me that question. But they weren't really asking me because they were talking about that question. They were, <laughs> they were actually kind of preaching on that question. And I was like, I was glued to the TV when I heard this question. Because I was like, that's exactly what happened. This guy has an answer. He knows what's up. So what does it mean? When God gives you a dream, he shows up in the dream, and then without warning, the dream dies. In order to answer that question, we have to talk about this passage, the Shunammite woman. I know everyone in here knows the Shunammite woman. You probably decorated a nursery in her honor, the Shunammite woman. We don't know her name, but she was a great woman. In other words, a woman of wealth. As a matter of fact, uh, what's really interesting in here, uh, I'm just going to read verse 8 real quick, and then I'm going to paraphrase the story because it's, I think, more entertaining that way. But uh, in verse 8, it says, Now there came a day when Elisha passed over to Shunem, where there was a prominent woman, and she persuaded him to eat food. And so it was, as often as he passed by, that he turned in there to eat. 
Fun fact, I can count on my hand, one hand anyway, and I don't need all of my fingers to tell you how many women in Scripture who are introduced not as the wife of someone else. She's married. You'll find out in a little bit. But she's not introduced as the wife of so-and-so. She is the Shunammite woman, a prominent woman. She's, uh, she, she, she's a big girl. She matters a lot. And, and, and when this was written, they didn't feel it necessary to say, uh, Elisha came to the wife of so-and-so. No, it's just, Elisha came to the Shunammite woman. And I'm going to explain to you in a moment why she had that honor. So to paraphrase the, the story, which continues for just under 30 verses, uh, Elisha, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the understudy of Elijah, uh, Elisha is, is traveling through the land of Shunem. And Shunem, in your notes, you can write this down, uh, it means uh, two resting places. And how perfect it is that the land is known as two resting places, and the woman is just known as the Shunammite woman or the, the resting place woman. And, and she uh, is like, Elisha, come and eat while you travel. And the food must have been really good because he decides to make that a regular stop during his travels of the area. Uh, at which point she goes to her husband and says, hey, uh, he keeps stopping by. I think we should build an addition onto our house. Let's build another room that is just for him. Uh, and so now, every time he passes through the area, he's got a place to stay. He's got great food. It's every pastor's dream. And so he, uh, you know, he stays there uh, several, several times until it's just a regular occurrence. And then he decides he wants to do something for her. And so he turns to his servant, whose name is Gehazi. I think that's how you say it. I don't know. <laughs> Best guess. He turns to Gehazi and he says, uh, find out, you know, what, what uh, she needs, if there's a need or something, so that we can do something for her. Uh, and then uh, uh, Elisha says, for example, um, if she wants us to put in a good word with the king or the military leader. And I want you to know real quick who the king is right now is King Joram. There's two King Jorams. Doesn't matter which one, they were both really bad. And they were, they were both kings at the exact same time. So it's, it's a little complicated. One of like the northern part of Israel, one of the southern part of Israel. Uh, so whichever one he might have been referring to, which was probably the northern one, uh, was not great. Was kind of an enemy of, of God. Um, uh, was all in favor of worshiping Baal or Baal or Baal, depending on who you ask. And so Elisha has the ability to curry favor with an evil king on behalf of this woman. I want you to, to understand the weightiness of what he just offered. I will go to someone who hates and despises my God, and I can get a favor for you. Or I can go to the military leader. And she says, no, nah, don't worry about it, I'm good. And Elisha doesn't accept that answer, and so what he does instead is ask his servant, hey, so what do you think? Let's, let's concoct something. Let's do something for her. And Gehazi has noticed that she doesn't have any kids, and she's getting older, and her husband is old. It's a very nice way to put it. The husband is old, but the wife is just getting older. And so they don't, they don't have any kids, which if you're familiar with the culture at the time, that's kind of a big deal, and it's kind of a problem. If you don't have kids, they viewed it as a curse from God. So if you don't have kids, after God says, be fruitful and multiply, then what did you do to anger God that he won't let you have a kid? 
And so it was uh, regularly viewed as a, a bit of a curse or a negative thing not to have children. And so Gehazi points this out to Elisha. So unprompted, Elisha goes to the woman and says, this time next year, you'll have a child. What does she say? Don't lie to your servant. Now, what was she doing? Was she actually calling Elisha a liar? No. You know what I think she was doing? I think she was saying, don't go there. Don't do that. Don't even wake that dream up. She was getting old. Her husband was old. Probably had wanted a kid for a long time. So she was like, don't, don't toy with my emotions. Let that dream die. But the very next verse, we find out she has a kid. Awesome. God answered the, the dream. She has a child. This is great. If you know where the story goes, you know, ugh. If you don't know where the story goes, now you're a little bit concerned. Why did John just do that on stage? Um, <laughs> years later, not a, not a baby anymore, but a young child. As a young child, the boy has a headache, and he goes to his father, and he says to his father, my head really hurts. And like a lot of fathers, the father says, okay, cool, go talk to your mother. And so uh, he, he goes out of the field, goes to the house where his mom is. He curls up in her lap and dies in her arms. What does she do? This is a key moment. She goes into the room they had built for Elisha, lays him on Elisha's bed, leaves, goes to the husband, says, all's well, but I'm going to Elisha. And, Elisha, and the, the husband's like, that's weird. You usually go on like a Sabbath or something, but it's not the Sabbath. And she goes, all is well, see you later. And she runs off after Elisha. And eventually she, she gets close and Elisha sees her um, in the distance. He asks Gehazi, run out and greet her and say, is all well with you, your husband and the child? Uh, she tells Gehazi, all is well, gets to Elisha, falls at his feet. And he goes, is everything okay? She says, all is well. Also, didn't I ask you not to lie to me? Didn't I say, do not deceive your servant? And she explains that her son has died. And Elisha says, take this staff, lay it on his forehead, and he'll wake up. And she says, as surely as the Lord lives and you live, I will not leave you. And Elisha says, okay, I'll come too. So Elisha uh, goes with her, but he still thinks the staff is a good idea, so he sends Gehazi ahead of them because one person can go a lot faster. Uh, he lays the, safe, uh, the staff on the kid's head. Nothing happens. Let's Elisha know. Elisha gets there, and then this is kind of odd, um, but Elijah did something similar in the first book of Kings. So Elisha lays on top of the child, forehead to forehead, nose to nose, mouth to mouth, hands to hands, and the kid sneezes seven times and wakes up. What does that story mean? Why did God do that to this poor woman? I mean, the, she, she didn't have a kid for years, then she did, now the kid's dead, now the kid's back. It just sounds torturous, right? And so I want to talk to you about that, about what it means when God gives you a dream to have a child, and then shows up, the child arrives. And then without warning, the dream dies. I, I contend that God 
wanted to know in that moment what was more important to the Shunammite woman, the dream or God? And it's not that far-fetched. God's done that before, Abraham and Isaac. Job, people have, have had their, their dreams taken from them and sometimes then restored. And so what, what I realized in the middle of 2017 as I was reading through this story and, and going through this, this question, I, I realized that, that God had taken my dream from me and he wanted to know, did I care about my impact or God more? And unfortunately, I was failing that test. And the story of the Shunammite woman tells us that, that once God knows the answer to that question, you might get your dream back, or you might not. C.S. Lewis once said, uh, um, a man who has God and many things has nothing more than a man who has God alone. Now, I under, always understood that as like, well, a man who has God and a brand new Tesla has nothing more than a man who has God alone, or a man who has God and a, a really nice you know, cushy office job has nothing more than a man who has God alone. But what I had to realize is that a man who has God and a really successful ministry has nothing more than a man who has God alone. A man who has God and all the impact in the world has nothing more than a man who has God alone because God is everything. God is the point. My dream was impact. My dream should have been God. Because everything else is going to let me down. And so the, the, uh, the realization there, uh, the Shunammite woman, when, when her child died, her reaction was not to uh, curse God. Her reaction was to lay her child in, like, the room where God's person stays and then run straight to a man of God. She was confused. She didn't know what happened. She didn't know why it happened, but she was going to get as close to God as she could. And that's the lesson for us this morning. When these things happen, when things are taken from us, when, when we don't understand what's going on, when we're confused and feeling like everything is falling apart, we need to run to our Savior. We need to run to God. And Elisha's name means my God is salvation. That was just for you, Pastor Scott, if you're watching. <laughs> salvation comes from God. And so all that to say, now that I've kind of gone through the whole story, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quickly give you your notes because there's another brief story I want to share before we get out of here. But all of these, you've, you've heard us kind of say, but I'm, I'm going to go through it real quick. Our point number one, you might get your dream, even if you have to wait. The Shunammite woman did a lot of waiting. And she also wasn't the only person. Sarah, other people in the Bible had to wait long times to get what they wanted. And you might get your dream. You very well might get your dream. Point number two, uh, you know, you might get your, uh, your dream. Uh, you might also lose your dream. You might lose your dream, like the Shunammite woman did. And when that happens, you have a decision to make. Point number three, you're going to have to decide what's more important. 
Is it the dream or is it God? The PC share that I came up with this week was a a reminder that I needed to make in myself because my worth was tied up in my dream. My worth was tied up in the impact I thought God wanted me to have. My worth was tied up in ministry instead of Christ. And so when it fell apart, I was worthless because I had put my worth in something that I could lose instead of putting it in Jesus Christ. And so you have to decide what's more important. And the, the last point, number four, you're going to discover that God is enough. Amen. God is enough. How many of you have ever uh, read Voyage of the Dawn Treader by C.S. Lewis? Cool. I really like that only like 10 of you because y'all are going to know where this is going and everyone else gets to hear it for the first time. And there's a kid in the Chronicles of Narnia stories. His name's Eustace. And he's got some problems. And once you hear the name Eustace and Voyage of the Dawn Treader, if you've read it, you probably already know where I'm going to go with it. It was probably the best scene in the entire series of books. Eustace uh, gets a little bit too, he's a boy. He makes mistakes, but he gets a little too prideful, a little too greedy. And he lives in the magical land of Narnia where, you know, things happen uh, on a whim based on (laughs) your mood. He wakes up one morning and he's a dragon, right? That's cool. Dragons are awesome. Uh, Less awesome when you used to be a small boy and now find yourself to be a dragon. Uh, You find that life gets a little bit lonely. You can't really hang out and play at recess with your friends. You can't ride a horse if you're a dragon. Um, You're a little too big. You're a dragon. You guys get this, okay? So he's a dragon. Cool at first. Dragons in in stories are usually entities of great greed. And and so his his very desire for um, a name for himself, his desire for his wealth, had turned him into a dragon. And eventually he decides, this isn't really what I want. But he can't do anything about it. The the change of heart wasn't enough to fix the problem. He, He was still a dragon, and... He kind of scratched at himself, but, but nothing worked. And he went to Aslan, who's the lion in uh, the story. The lion, the witch, in the wardrobe was the first one. And, and Aslan is the lion. If you didn't know, he's basically Jesus. That was who C.S. Lewis uh, put in the story to be the Christ figure. Uh, Aslan, the lion, takes him to a pool. Not going to cry. He, he, he takes Eustace as a dragon to a pool to soak in the hot spring, and Eustace starts clawing at himself, but he can only dislodge a couple of scales. Can't do it himself. So Aslan wades down into the pool with him, and he says, This is going to hurt. And he takes, he's a lion. Again, he's a lion. This is a story. He takes his claws and he rakes them again and again on the flesh of Eustace, the once boy, now dragon. And it's the most intense pain Eustace has ever felt. But it's necessary. Because at the end of it, he stands up He's a boy. 
the work had been done. Aslan had done it. God could have spared me. The pain that I felt. But he didn't. God could have uh, changed the pastor's mind, but he didn't. He could have softened the heart of, of the leadership in the other church to find a way for me to be involved with the youth there, but he didn't. Instead, he was more concerned with fixing me than making me feel like I had a really big impact on things. And so, my pride, my dream, my desire for a great ministry, my, my desire for, for my name to be up in lights as I held some massive gospel crusade, all of these things that I had built up for myself had to be dragged, kicking and screaming to the altar of God, to be torn from me dragon scales. There was a work that had to be done in my life. And I realized eventually, after a long period, that my dream was never supposed to be about impact, that my dream was never supposed to be about ministry. My dream was supposed to be about God. And I, I realized that I had finally learned that when I suddenly wasn't concerned with, okay, what's the next church I'm going to serve at? When am I going to get to do another sermon? When am I going to be able to crack the Bible open and share something with someone? And instead, I was just concerned with getting to know my Savior again. And this was a, a really hard lesson for me. It was a necessary lesson. It was a hard lesson for, for the Shunammite woman, but, but God eventually got me to a point where my focus was him instead of myself, instead of my impact, instead of everything else. You see, the problem was saying that uh, God can't steer a parked car is that while it sounds great, it almost even smells scriptural. That's not actually in the Bible. I looked, um, cars, turns out they weren't invented yet. I guess you could say God can't steer a parked wagon, but that just doesn't have the same that it does. You can come up first. The problem with saying that God can't steer a parked car is that while it sounds biblical, it actually isn't. I was so busy pedaling my car thinking I had to get busy or God wasn't going to be able to do anything with me that I missed what he was saying to me. You see, in Scripture, time and time and time again, what do the great people of faith do when they don't know what to do? They wait on God. They don't do anything. They just sit and they wait to hear from God. You can ask my wife, I was so proud of the bulldozer mentality that I had, the charge the hill mentality. When I got an idea in my head, it was full steam ahead, and let's just go and go and go, because God already said go, and I'm not going to stop unless he says stop. But I got so wrapped up in the going 
that my, my car's engine was too loud to hear the, the small, still voice of God. And, and here's the thing, guys. If I'm pedaling so hard that I can't hear God, I'm useless to him. God can steer a parked car. He's God. But you know what he can't do? Force me to do the right thing when I'm not even listening. If I'm not listening for his voice, I'm going to miss it. And if I miss it, what's the point? And so, as we uh, prepare to come to a close, as I think about this revelation that if God can steer a parked car and I'm supposed to wait and I'm supposed to listen and I'm supposed to just relax. I don't have to be busy all the time. I started to find peace again. I started to find comfort again. And I closed my journal too soon. The last thing that I wrote there, I wrote intentionally so that I wouldn't forget it. And then I forgot it. Thank you. I wrote this, and, uh, and I wanted to share it with you. It's just a couple sentences. They didn't want to get it wrong, so I wrote it down. The impact that God has for us does not happen while we are pursuing impact. The impact happens when we pursue God. What, the, what does scripture say? Uh, uh, oh, as the, the deer pants before streams of water, so my soul pants for impact. As the deer pants before streams of water, so my soul pants for a really great ministry. So it pants for that contract I've been trying to make, that big sale, that massive agreement, that promotion at work. No. As the deer pants before streams of water, so my soul pants for thee, O God. Do you have a dream? Do you have any ambition at all? Do you have a goal? Are there things you want to accomplish? For me, the answer was for a long time, yes. I had lots of dreams, lots of goals. And goals are good. The problem was the goals became the thing instead of God. And the problem with elevating my own dreams so high is that as soon as anything comes between me and what God is telling me to do, as soon as there is anything that I am unwilling to let go of, it's become an idol in my life, and I am in sin. And so for the first time in my life in 2017, coming to the end of this depression, it became also the best year of my life because in that moment, I discovered a God that I had never heard about in Sunday school, a God that wanted me to let go of my dream, a God that wanted me to let go of my goals and all my good ideas and just pursue him. And then he gripped me. He's been with me ever since. That's what I want for you guys this morning. Here, online, watching this video a year from now on YouTube, I don't, 
God's here. And he's still going to be here after we leave. He's everywhere. He's God. So uh, this morning, if you would say that you have a dream or a goal or, or anything that you feel might have come between you and God at any point in your life, I want to say, it's not too late. How do I know that? You're sitting here right now. And so right now you can choose, God, I'm not going to pursue impact or insert whatever your thing is there. I'm not going to pursue Instead, I'm going to pursue you. It's the hardest lesson I ever had to learn. It was the most painful lesson I ever had to learn. I almost didn't learn it. I almost gave up. I don't want you to give up. You're going to get through it. You're here today. God is here for you. He is always here for you. Lord, this morning we, we thank you for the reminder that you are a God of more than just impact. That you are a God of more than just dreams. That you are a God of, of more than just booming ministries and growing youth groups. That you are a God of souls. You're a God of love. You're a God of righteousness, a God of justice. And Lord, this morning I pray for, for everyone here in person, online, or watching at some point in the future, Lord, that you would make your will known to them. If there's anything that we are holding between us and you, Lord, that you would strip it away like dragon scales from our flesh. Help us to pursue you. Help us to make our dreams you. Help us to make our goals you. us to pursue you and you alone. We love you, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Would you stand for a benediction? Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless and blameless before the throne of his amazing Mercy be all honor and power and glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Enjoy the rest of your day. God bless you. Keep God first. <laughs>